I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. It was something familiar. Like the sound of the sea I forgot I remembered Like some lost part of me It was only a flicker It was barely a trace Only the to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I am sitting in the basement of Clove Club, which is actually larger than your old office used to be, so things have been obviously going incredibly well. Windows? We upgraded. Yeah, super upgraded. There comes a point. Um, sitting with Daniel and Johnny. Good to see you guys again, as always. Nice to see you too. Yeah, my yeah. first stop always when I come 
to town. Um, so for the like handful of the uninitiated, give us the backstory. You have two minutes. Go. Yeah. Go. 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 So the club club opened in 2013 in Shoreditch Town Hall. Um, before that, we did some supper club pop up stuff, and um, then we did um, a residency level pub, um, which was kind of a precursor to doing all this stuff. But now we are in our own four walls. Shortish Town Hall, open 2013, um, we quickly um, established it as hopefully one of London's kind of new um, ambitious restaurants. We have received a number of different awards. We got um, number two in the um, National Restaurant Awards. We broke into the 50 best, number 87. And uh, then last year we came 55 in that. Um, and fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, this is going to air on a later date, but this weekend you're yeah. going to New York. Yeah, we are. New suits, new haircuts. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got <laughs> Last week. Last week. Yeah, it's fine. You need to get a week before, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a haircut for Darren's wedding like a month before. I don't have that much hair, so it's got to <laughs> it's got to grow back. And so fingers crossed. Well, I guess by the time we'll know yeah. whether or not. Um, where you where you guys land? Yeah. Well, the fifty-one to hundred has been published. Yes. Oh, and we're not listed in it. Okay. So it's either very good, yeah. or, or that's fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah, or a step back from last year, shall we say? Um. So one of the the thing, and that was excellent. That was two minutes. You did such a good. I job. missed out the Michelin star, so sorry. Oh, we got one yeah, of that, yeah. Um. Amazing how like you mentioned Isaac. <laughs> uh. Well, I mean, that's up to you if you want to mention. Yeah, of course, Isaac, who's uh, obviously up in the kitchen. Yeah. Um. One of the things, I mean, it's it's funny because, like, when those things happened, they were such big milestones, but now you've told the story so many times, they are just kind of, like, mile, they become mile markers along the way of that, like, the global recognition of the success and the hard work you've done. And one of the things, having known you, the three of you for so long, that I keep coming back to when I was uh, doing research, was, like, evolution. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, that's a really interesting concept because where you we started to go and where you are now... And I'd be kind of curious, like, what themes do you see have, like, carried through that, like, the ethos from the beginning that still kind of remain if you're coming to eat uh, in Clove Club in 2016? I think the main thing for me is the format, in a way, is kind of still the same as it always was. Like, right from the start, it was, you know, you paid in advance for, <laughs> like, uh, four courses, and you got some snacky things at the start, and then... It was four courses, and then we finished off with, um, you know, a uh, a couple of sweet things and a, and a digest thief. And regardless of what's happened, it's like, you know, within that kind of template, um, that's that's one thing that I'm often struck by is that we're we've been doing the same thing regardless of the environment or, you know, or, or the price point. It's kind of it still comes back to that trying to create that most amazing meal, but still with kind of those parameters haven't really changed, you know? I don't know how you feel about it. Well, it's been about, um, I suppose, I agree with that, definitely. It's about embellishing and evolving on those very same ideas, isn't it? Yeah. And not only on the restaurant floor and in terms of, you know, the, the direct guest experience in the restaurant, whether it's um, whether it's a new way of cooking that Isaac comes up with or it's a new way of serving cocktails or whatever it is, but also our kind of 
the way we've embraced technology to help us uh, develop and improve the guest experience as well. Either. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. And I also want to come back to Isaac and, and his cooking as well. But um, it's been a, almost a little bit over a year since you adopted Talk. Mm. Um, and I think you were the first London restaurant to really, uh, if not in the UK, to do that. Um, the response was interesting. It was like very similar to how like they rolled it out in the States. But like, how has it been um, adopting that? And like, what other technology have you used to help with the guest experience, both for, for you guys and, and for the guests themselves? Talk's been a, a totally positive experience, I'd say. I think there was initially a little bit of kickback. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a new, it's a new thing for many people to have yeah. to pay in advance to come to a restaurant. But I think we had, um, we had so much goodwill from the guests who'd been here, and they, they kind of, when you explain the reasons behind it, in terms of you know, protecting ourselves as a business from no-shows and short-seated tables, um, then, then guests get on board with it, and they understand it. And it's um, people embrace it now. People actually like 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 the process of going through the website mm-hmm. and kind of having this new experience of selecting how many people they're going to come with at the time they come. So. Yeah, it's fun actually. I purchased tickets for Mitch's dinner at mm-hmm. uh, Lyle's because um, they used top for their um, guest series dinner, and I was just struck by how really how easy and simple it is you don't have to sit on the phone get someone to take your credit card details there's none of this kind of you just go on and you know and it's just done and actually it's you know some of the things that I reiterate to guests or journalists are you know kind of nice to have that from the customer perspective in that you know the credit card details that you give are stored even just something a little like it's stored in a vault it's on the internet it's not like just written in to someone's book or like yeah. on an open table in a guest note or whatever it's um, yeah and it's it's really really quick and easy to use and I think um, interestingly speaking to them recently about um, in conversation about how different ways of how we can use it for events or other or in other ways um, yeah they basically um, they said like they from Tox's perspective, it's the game's changed now. Like the, you know, it's out. People have experienced it, you know, right across Europe, um, which I think was a little bit behind because obviously it came um, out in the US first. People are much more kind of aware of it and not resistant to it. It's not this kind of indignant shock that they have to pay for a meal before they've had it. And and like you said, Lyles uses it, but has it spread to more? In the in the year has it spread to more restaurants? There's still because in the states it's it's kind of adopted by a certain level of restaurant. Yeah, likewise here. Yeah. But uh, talk or equivalent systems are versatile in terms of how you can use them. Yeah, and, and simply on the point of uh, discouraging diners from not from not showing up for their reservations, uh, it can be used in a multitude of of ways. You know, even just paying a small deposit per diner just to dissuade them. I think it's interesting how. Technology is, um, I mean, in the restaurant industry, it feels like there's about to be great change. If you look at TOC and people paying in advance, you look at um, Danny Meyer and Dave Chang in America and they're abolishing tipping, etc. Which we're kind of just actually just catching up to European systems in, in that way, fair wages and all, and all that. Yeah, it's a bit of a minefield, I think, that... Actually, she's very fairly over here, but there is a 
there is a guru. The whole idea, the whole idea of it, is that it's it's kind of a grey area which is managed in a certain way. There's certain hoops that you have to jump through to allow you to, which you know over here is called trunk. Um, but it can, but it can be as easily abused as it can used in for fair very, wages. Yeah, okay. it can, it, when it's used properly, it's an incredibly fair way to pay your staff. Mm. But when it's not. Um, then it's you know you, you can have a, a pretense of paying everybody fairly and using this money that essentially you're asking your guests um, to give um, for staff and that's where they're presuming it's going and then sometimes it just doesn't make it there mm. which is which is a, you know a, a bit weird in that sense but um, but then again you know so in the UK when you have that it's if it's used well and fair then. There's less cash tips given, which means, or, or none, which means that um, everyone pays tax on it, which goes towards the National Health Service. The kitchen receives as much as it if it's divvied up fairly enough, as well as the waiters. So there's not this, you know, disparity and complete contradiction of the people sometimes that work the hardest in the kitchen that are doing the most hours receive the least amount of money right. and the people that get the most amount of money do less hours they're not necessarily the least skilled but in some cases they are and they're also not paying any tax on any of this and in right. the UK if it's done fairly it, 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 it is it's very good it's very efficient and it's very fair yeah I mean fairness I think is like under this uh, agreement which is why I like talk and those are things it, it, it it's fair to the restaurant. There's no other really services in the world that you would actually like pay after or not or like it just doesn't make sense. So you you mentioned it's other. Just, yeah. It's just re-educating people, isn't it? Yeah, and you mentioned other technology to help um, besides talk. What other? What else have you done with it in the dining room? Technology in the dining room. Uh, <laughs> we've got a fancy new lighting system where you press one button and all the <laughs> lights change to different levels. And, um, I can't really think of an example in the dining room. No, I think it's something that um, I would say we. I don't know. We have more of a progressive approach to things that we can use to improve the business. Um, technology in terms of like the guest-facing element, less so. But just even little things like the way in which you use an iPad, um, you know, for the information, the guest notes and stuff, and, like, just a way of dis distributing information to kind of, you know, improve service. That's, you know, there's a whole heap of things that you can do, um, which, you know, aren't rocket science, but, you know, take time to kind of embed into the culture and people's approach to kind of, you know, improving guest experience, mm. I suppose. And on top of the guest experience, the, the food, and you said you've uh, embraced technology in the, in the kitchen as well. So, like, how is Isaac, uh, now that you've grown bigger and you've kind of grown out of your former spaces, like, how does that come into play um, with, like, the dishes that you're putting out these days? Isaac, um, Isaac's never kind of really chased after the latest bits of equipment and the latest uh, cooking techniques, although he observes them and he embraces them where he feels necessary. Which is the best approach. Like, early adopters are kind of like, that's all gimmicky, but a slow fold-in yeah. always yeah. is, like, the most valued, um, especially, or, you know, if you're not first, then be choosy. Yeah. Yeah, so he kind of, you know, Isaac will buy equipment as, as and when he feels he needs it, you know. He's had a, we've had a Paco jet since day one, for example, but... Mm -hmm. 
we've never had a sous vide machine. We've mm. just got a blast chiller because it you know makes sense because we've only got a small kitchen. Mm. So I think he kind of um, Isaac's very interested in in craft and the process. You know, he massively influenced by Japanese food and he loves his Japanese knives, etc. But um, he, he doesn't he doesn't chase after the latest technology in terms of it really um, influencing what goes on the plate. It's mm. all about the quality of the ingredient and the idea and the concept behind it. Uh, and then, like, as you have continued to evolve, um, have you had more time to be experimental or push the technique in the kitchen? I mean, the raw scallop dish that you guys brought out last night was incredibly simple on the plate, but you could just tell that it was, like, so much time and so much exper- experimentation. So many of the, like larger restaurants will just have like experimental kitchens mm. have you found more time and freedom to be able to do that type of experimentation I think it's always it's always a stress I know for Isaac to try and with such little space you know to try and find that time to get on a stove or get some space in the oven um, so times I don't think is an issue has changed I think there's little things now. For us, it's always a challenge with the space. That's the main thing. And for a lot of... In a lot of ways, that is what defines the food here. Like, you'll have a couple of raw fish dishes to start off with because there's no space to have a cooked fish dish, then a cooked meat dish, then a cooked fish dish because there's just one guy on one six-burner. Hmm. And so from that perspective, it's finding new ways to be creative within those kind of constraints um, but again, like just a little thing, like we you mentioned on Schwanky New Office. Well, that's made way. Us leaving it has made way to put um, a cold room in downstairs so we can age the meat. So now we have more control. So there's while it's not a technological advance, it's more space to try different things in terms of how long we age the meat and which meats we age. Similarly, just having little things like a backpack machine. Now we can kind of play around with that, the guys in the bar have been playing around with that, so you can, you know, you can have, <clears throat> we, yeah, just saves on space, we can play around with those sort of things, and I think, yeah, I think that's, the tools haven't particularly changed massively, but it's just, it's finding new and interesting ways within the constraints we've got to kind of, for things to evolve, and, you know, something like that, raw fish dish, I think is a classic example, you know, there's, there's nothing crazy gone into that that's that you couldn't do you know in, in a domestic kitchen if you had enough time and the technique and the knowledge mm. um so yeah i think that's that's always going to be the challenge at clothes club uh unless we move house pictures <laughs> um all right we're going to take a quick musical break and then we'll be back to talk about london food scene and uh the next upcoming project In our eyes. 
One of the things uh, that's like really changed in the last, you know, kind of 10 years is the, the London dining scene. And I think that um, maybe 10 years ago, it would not have been receptive to what you're what you're doing. How do you feel what you've done has kind of helped to push the current dining scene uh, in London? And, you know, who else is inspiring you to kind of push things forward? Um, by virtue of the fact that we were able to start a restaurant from our front room of our flat you know five years ago and um we've gone through the different stages of being some being in a flat um doing pop-ups around london um running a six-month restaurant above a pub and then finally um signing a lease and opening a restaurant here you know just going through that that process and that process being embraced by keen you know keen food lovers around london just going through just the fact that that's able to happen is kind of it's um it really shows what what you're able to do, especially in a city like London that embraces mm-hmm. food so much. 
Um, and, and do you think, um, what did, like, what do you think that you were able, that you had to, what rules did you have to still comply by that were, like, the tried and true rules? And what things did you, like, maybe, like, before you didn't, like, you didn't have to follow them? Like, the white tablecloths, all that type of stuff, or, like, what could allow you to kind of grow in, like, the current landscape? I think we just, we wanted to do something which was personal to us, and while we, while we didn't want to try and choose things to differentiate ourselves just for the sake of it, you know, the clothes club, I always, I always very much fondly look back on the, in its first, um, incarnation is that it was designed by the three of us about what what would the restaurant look like that we want to go to, you know. And we kept on coming back to it. What do we like about the restaurants? What do we like about eating out? What don't we like? And that, I suppose, um, were the key elements. And then there were other things like, you know, we just couldn't afford linen, so we didn't do it. And, you know, while at the same time we, we weren't, um, you know, naive enough to think that it wasn't a statement, it was also just... You know, I, we, I worked at St John. You know, you don't, you don't get, you don't get, um, you know, you don't get bread plates there. You just get bread put down and you just crack it open on the table and, and get stuck in. And I think um, that kind of rustic element of our kind of from Johnny and I anyway, in terms of our kind of training and, what, and where we come from, I think has always been a really nice um, counterpoint to Isaac's experience in fine dining. And I think you know we came. What we started doing, you know, you know, over, over everything that we've done, it's kind of it, it, the, in the first instance, it came around at a time where, you know, there was a lot of really classic kind of, you know, some quite boring restaurants in London, and I think, I think people really responded to what we were doing because it felt new and fresh and exciting, and I think it came around at a time where you had to maybe go to a restaurant where you didn't feel comfortable to eat really great food. And here, something mm. came along where you could eat that really amazing food, and you know there were two northern jokers who just <laughs> kind of made you feel comfortable. And I think that's that that was a big part of it. I think for people. And I mean, and looking to the the future, um, obviously, you, you you know, how do you keep pushing this, or where does the evolution come from, both the, the food side and, and and the service side as well, or or the approach, you know, after this weekend and everything, and you know, knock on wood, the. The place is secured. Like, where do you, where do you think that it goes, or where does you know keep being ahead of what you think the customers want or anticipating their needs? I mean, God, um, <laughs> we I think we 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 work closely the three of us, which I think is a really important point. Um, you know, we Daniel and I aren't necessarily involved in the food on a day to basis, you know, a day to day basis in terms of cooking and preparing it, but then neither is Isaac actually. You know, manipulating the reservation system, whether well, it is partly. But the fact is, we, we're constantly all talking about the business and how to improve it, about the food, about the wine. Um, you know, we're constantly taking inspiration from places we go to, restaurants we eat at, people we meet, and you know, we care. We care about um, progression and development. We're not. We're not. We're not chasing the latest thing. Mm. We're just really passionate about constantly trying to improve the guest experience wherever possible and it kind of you know sometimes two months will go past and not much happens and then suddenly you have a flurry and 
you know, you'll have three intense months where, you know, we look at the tea and coffee service and we change it all. We look at how we're going to start serving digestives. We look at the petty fours. We look at how we're going to present the, the, the bill to the guest so that you can embellish their experience in some way. That's really uh, in- interesting because I think when people kind of look from outside looking in, it like looks not fully formed or it's like a little bit of thing. So, I mean, when you're looking at like take presenting, I, I would love to know how do you how did you improve on presenting the check to the guest? Well, we've never have. Oh, okay. So we've yeah. discussed at length, but never just got around to doing. Isaac at points got really into uh, uh, origami and trying to make up these <laughs> things, uh, which didn't actually get uh, implemented, but. Um, yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's kind of like the Golden Gate Bridge, the whole process, you know, you, as soon as you've, as soon as you've, uh, <laughs> as soon as you've got to one point where you're happy with something, you know, the last thing that, that you changed, or the first thing you changed within that process is now out of date, and you've got to look at that again. You know, coffee and tea honestly hasn't changed since we opened, and we've never been happy with it, and Isaac and, um, our head, like head barman Rob, have put a ton of effort into that, and we've all been part of that process. But you know, we're really, really near um, changing that over. And when it does, it's going to be really, really amazing. We're going to have some amazing teas. Mm. Um, we've saw we've saw some really amazing teas and coffees, um, and it's going to be really, really, really great. I mean, a lot of the great restaurants do say that like the coffee service is like such a missed opportunity to yeah. really just like the final impression yeah. just to really wow the guests yeah completely I think people um, more and more people have been exposed to different types of coffees now and um, quite often having something which is slightly lighter in caffeine um, you know and kind of showcases lighter lighter fruit if you like fruitier flavours for example may, might be a nicer option rather than having a heavy double espresso at the end of the meal you know yeah. just for example I think just going back to kind of um, the involvement of this restaurant. Restaurants are living and breathing uh, spaces, you know, especially when you observe seasonality, for example. And also, you've got to remember the staff that come through the door. So each year, you have the same kind of ingredients. You know, you have peas and asparagus and morels, say, um, May time each year, okay? But you might have a different set of chefs in the kitchen or a different bartender or a different sommelier working within your team and all these people have different ideas about those ingredients or about those circumstances and by virtue of that it's evolving it's changing you know and you know we're here every day we need to we need to feel like we're going somewhere we're on a journey it can't be the same from year to year um speaking of changes Mm. uh we can talk about it Mm. you have a new space yeah um so what are what can you share um (laughs) we can't really tell you the name because we are waiting for um, yeah waiting for trademarks to get back to us to let us know if we can actually use it and we after, already, after having after, had to change the name already after having okay. one that we were really post, happy with post branding and yeah. a well known London operator um, unfortunately just randomly choosing the same <laughs> syllables uh, yeah so um, well we, I'll let you go you go we are going to be opening a, um, a new restaurant, which is about 10 minutes away from the Clove Club, that will serve um, modern Italian food with great seasonal British produce. 
British produce seen through an Italian lens. Fantastic. Um, and will any, and there'll be no crossover, none of the dishes that were experimented here will come over there to totally brand new. I, I mean, mean, still Isaac. You know, exactly the craft involved. We make our own salumi, um, salami here. We may do some of that at the Clove Club. Um, I mean, at the new restaurant, the name I can't mention. <laughs> there will there will be definitely be some crossover, but they're going to be a new set of dishes, basically. We're, the the um, term which we are using is um, Britalian to, oh. des- to describe the kind of the food, the wine, the concept a little bit. And you, you won't see Britalian written anywhere in the restaurant. It's just a kind of nice, cheeky, fun way of summing up um, what this restaurant what we hope it to be. And one of the things that you mentioned was, like, you couldn't afford linens, yeah. so that's why linens weren't here. And one of the great things about creativity is that a lot of it comes from constraint. Yeah. So, like, how are you, you know, given that, like, you are so established now in, in a global level, what type of way would you be, you know, kind of trying to enforce, like, not force creativity, but yeah. creative thinking when you have a, a lot more freedom, um, getting backing, et cetera, into, into the project? Well, you know... We're not um, we're not backed by the Middle East. We're taking a massive <laughs> loan from the bank to make it happen. So in that sense, we're still going to approach our northern and Scottish um, frugal uh, spending habits to make it happen. So in that sense, it's still we still have similar constraints. I think what we're most looking forward to, and probably jealous of this restaurant here in comparison to the Clove Club, is hopefully we're going to get it right first time round. There were so many things we just knew we had to buy that were, like, cheap, um, which we knew we were going to have to replace, but we just couldn't afford to mm. do it because we were just getting really, really close to um, open a restaurant with vapour in the bank, which is, um, you know, the one thing that you shouldn't do. Um, so, yeah, I think from all of our perspective, it's, it's going to be about 124 covers, which mm. is... A clove club as a space is quite big. It's just a, it's an awkward space because of the two rooms. But again, it's probably a third bigger than clove club with less awkwardness too, I suppose. So it's going to be big. And from that sense, it's going to be a completely different business model, which um, which we're really looking forward to kind of attacking, really. Just yeah, 100%. Creating. And it'd be interesting, you know, we're constantly labelled with the restaurant where you have to buy the set menu before you get through the door and it's just, it'll be really, really nice for us, I think, to have, to not be labelled the hipster restaurant because we're in shortage, to not be, you know, to have these kind of opinions, opposing opinions of what we're doing because of the format we've chosen and it'll be, yes, it's going to be really great. It's hopefully going to be a really kind of family orientated. Um, space and business and feel really inclusive um, by virtue a la carte the price point would be um, lower definitely from the point of pre-entry um, so that that I think we're really looking forward to it's going to be seven days just all the things that you love about kind of you know Italian trattorias is kind of going to be our version of that a little bit further into town the, ven- the venue layout is going to be in- oh, the only reason I mentioned that is just because it's, there's different areas of the restaurant we'll be exploring different different kind of concepts and ideas I suppose there's going to be yeah. a front bar area which will be really light and airy airy and vibrant and you know uh, open for breakfast, lunch and dinner um, 
kind of small small sharing plates kind of concepts with you know um, a homemade uh, martini, homemade vermouth blend for drinks, for example. And then the main dining room um, where Isaac's going to be making homemade pasta uh, with the team, which is interesting. So interesting for the kitchen to kind of explore new techniques and crafts like pasta making. I think it's something that Isaac has kind of always wanted to do, but um, never been able to really give it the attention of, uh, that it deserves at Club Club. Yeah. Whereas here with a new, new new style of you know new type of cuisine, new space. It's, uh... Kitchen's going to be headed up by Robert Chambers, who Isaac worked with back at the library. Um, very talented, very talented chef, um, half Italian. Um, worked at Lacanda Lacatelli. Um, so Isaac's definitely going to help oversee. Um, but he's going to remain at Clove Club. Mm. Uh, and you guys get to tell a new origin story now yeah. as well, which is no more pop-ups and yeah. more or something. So thanks for making time. Not at all. Um, where can people find information on Clove Club uh, and the yet-to-be-determined uh, name of the new space? Oh, um, I would say you'll have to just, um, yeah... Well, that probably, hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll have a new Clove Club website, which is in development then. So we'll go to the cloveclub.com, um, and if you're if there's no information on the Clove Club website, if our website hasn't been redesigned by then, then please email <laughs> hello at the cloveclub.com and say, where is your new restaurant in capital letters as the title, and we'll let you know. Perfect. Um, well, thanks for making time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a quick musical break, and we'll be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes.
There are over 50,000 Chinese-American restaurants in the U.S. That's more than three times the number of McDonald's. How did Chinese-American food become so popular? And what's the story behind their unique menu of dishes like egg rolls and General's chicken? Brooklyn's Museum of Food and Drink is going to explain it all with our next exhibition, Chow, the Making of Chinese-American Cuisine, featuring tastings, beautiful artifacts, and live demos of a fortune cookie machine. Visit chow.mofad.org to learn more, get advanced tickets, and help us make this exhibition a reality. Again, that's the Museum of Food and Drink at chow.mofad.org. Welcome back. Uh, we have Josie and Clark and Ben Walker here in the studio. First U.S. radio show? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for joining today. Cool. Uh, how was Philly last night? Uh, yeah, good. It's a, it's a nice town. Yeah. yeah. Where did you play? Uh, at the Tin Angel. Oh, okay. Oh, great venue. Yeah. yeah. Um, how was your first U.S. tour going? Um, good. Obviously, it's like super exciting for us because um, not so many like British artists get to come out. Certainly not so early on mm-hmm. in the kind of U.S. venture. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you're so established in in your home country. Mm-hmm. Um, how is like the mind shift of you know you won a big award last year from BBC and, and all that stuff? But how is it like kind of coming to a new country and, and I don't want to say starting over, but uh, um, well, I mean, we're not like we're not the, as big as the Beatles no. uh, in the UK, but we certainly like don't, okay. don't have trouble like filling rooms yeah. and like people generally know who we are. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a bit weird. Like we, we're, it's like we remember being this new just about in the UK. So it's kind of it's there, like we're remembering kind how of to do it. Finishing these, finishing some of the concerts, some of the shows, and sort of going, oh, it's like that one time when we <laughs> yeah. played to. Um, so no, it's it's good. It's it is. You're right. It is a mind shift. Yeah. Um, but it's it's one you do, and you just do deal with it. It's kind of nice to like um, have the opportunity to slightly reinvent yourself as well. Oh yeah, like I guess a lot of people like if I had the chance like to do it again. again. Mm. Yeah. So um, what are you doing differently, or what are you reinventing in um, the states? I think I think we're trying to be cooler. Um, I don't know how well that's going. Um, We've got a rap section in one of the songs now, haven't we? Yeah, just, you know, putting some grime, dubstep on stuff. No, not really. (laughs) Um, How do you be cooler? (laughs) Um, Well, that is the million-dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) Um, So let's, for the, you know, people who don't know you, how did you two meet and how did you start working together? Um, Ben was in an indie band, like an indie rock band. Name, Name check. Lights. They were, yeah, That's they were called, called Lights. Then, <laughs> and then we yeah, had to change nice. it because there's a Canadian singer called Lights. Yeah. Mm. Um, um, yeah, he was he was in that, and uh, a sound engineer friend of mine uh, was mixing uh, some tracks for them, and he heard Ben play an acoustic guitar, and he was like, what are you doing in this band? <laughs> like, get an acoustic project. And he said, oh, I don't know any singers. And um, I was playing, like, bad guitar for myself, and was looking for a guitarist, and so he kind of like set us up, and uh, that was like seven and a bit years so, ago. Yeah. So. And was it like instantaneous, um, or how was you know the the process of beginning to to work together? Um, I think like musically, um, it just kind of worked right from the beginning. Like we have some musical instincts that are exactly the same, but also if you look at our record collections, they're also like completely different. So we kind of it's enough of the same stuff and different stuff to keep it interesting. Who's, so, in, who's in their respective collections? 
What's in your record collection? What's um, your... Well, I'm all kind of like 70s folk revival singers, jazz. Um, yeah, and, I tend to go from all, like, everything from everything from Aphex Twin and Allsecco all the way to Frank Zappa, and which is how you were able to call it Nelly. Yeah, before yeah. that started. <laughs> yeah. So that's how yeah. he knows. He knows just from the bass lines. Yeah, just yeah. just three three beats. <laughs> I could just do it in three beats. I give you every '90s rap song ever written. Um, so, I mean, as you kind of combined your, your backgrounds and you moved away from your, your indie projects, you know, what was the, the process of writing together and how did you begin to develop your sound together? Um, I guess I had, um, like, a small collection of songs when we started working together and Ben just kind of put some extra chords in them for me um, and <laughs> made them sound better and more That's interesting. That's how I 33%. <laughs> I just had three and, like, he's kind of, like, pushed it to four or five. Yeah. Um, and then he had some sort of like guitar, couple of instrument, instrumental things <laughs> yeah. that sort of um, that like he didn't have a place for, and I kind of worked on those and put like melody and lyrics on them, and we made songs out of those. So we kind of have like two ways of writing. Mm. We have I bring him something, and he makes it better, <laughs> and the stuff where he's got something that he doesn't know what to do with, and I make it into a song. And has that still remained seven seven plus years later? Now that you are fully entwined as a as a duo, yeah. Um, most recently, we started writing in the same room. Yeah, haven't we? we never used to do that. It's like I used to bring my stuff, yeah. and then we would like work on some stuff together, and then I would go away, and he'd have put an entire chamber orchestra on a song for me. Um, but we've started doing some stuff where we kind of just. And sort of bouncing, bouncing ideas back and forth, mm. um, which leads to completely different results, really. I mean, it's still us, mm. but um, I think it's just a different way of working, which... Well, we're trying, like, consciously to be more fluid in, like, lots of different ways in performance. Like, we used to kind of do the classical model of, like, there's a definitive, like, type of, like, version of this song, and we just play that. And um, we're trying to kind of push the boundaries of that and be a little bit more improvisatory and we've kind of done the same with the with the writing I mean it makes it interesting for live performances as well because you you sort of when you're doing a tour you do end up playing you sort of settle into a pattern and play the similar sort of thing or the same thing each night after night after night and actually if you've got that fluidity there you can kind of say well actually we're going to do we'll try it but at this point we're going to try to change things up. It's sort of like trying to um play them slightly differently so that our minds don't wander off and think about sandwiches because <laughs> that happens what type of sandwich do you think about um i'm thinking about bagels mostly because okay. new york what was it you said you were thinking about? oh laundry said, yeah ben started oh. thinking about his laundry but time. how do you uh how do you balance that obviously in in um london where they know your music quite well Versus, you know, your first U.S. tour when you're kind of introducing yourselves, where like it might be a variation for you, but maybe not like. Uh... Um, I think that here people don't notice. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's the thing. Um, but you're kind of like it gives because we've got completely new audiences. It gives those songs a little bit of a freshness for us anyway, because people are hearing them for the first time rather than in the U.K. Sometimes you feel like you're playing people the same. Kind of I mean, the, it's it's the thing with within the UK because it is comparatively such a small country. You do find a lot of people will travel from various parts of the country to come and see you, and then they'll travel at several points at the same mm. tour. Whereas here, it's like Josie was saying, because it's a new audience pretty much each night. You know, you can kind of try things out, and you can sort of um, keep things interesting 
um, and see what works and see how things go down. So, so can we can we hear our song? Sure. What are you going to play first? Um, this is something familiar. Okay. Uh, live on Snacky Tunes. It was something familiar Like the sound of the sea I forgot I Like some was part of me It was only a flicker It was barely a trace Only there for a second And then gone from your face One of the things that's noticeable about your live show is kind of like the bounce of humor and the kind of death and doom of the lyrics. Um, how do you kind of strike a light tone while still touching on such heavy topics? Um, I guess I originally started... I mean, I'm quite sarcastic anyway. Like that's just my personality. But I started cracking jokes because I was nervous and it made me feel more relaxed because the music's really intense and so people feel like they have to be really quiet. And that's quite... Um, quite an intimidating situation so I started making jokes just to put myself at ease and um, it seemed to go down pretty well and then you've kind of got the balance of like a three and a half minute song where people really have to be quiet and it's really intense and they have to listen and then you kind of give them a bit of a break between each one you kind of like let you give the first sigh yeah (laughs) like everyone can cough and, and breathe and laugh and just have a minute yeah. Uh, like, what's a classic uh, icebreaker for you? Um, well, I mostly talk about how miserable all of the songs are. Like, that's a really, <laughs> that's an easy win. Yeah. Um, like, it's that was too... depressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then that kind of puts the, the audience at ease and they kind of know that you're in on the, uh, 
Yeah, and like um, they've, I've got one thing about I tell people about how a lot of the gigs um, somebody always comes up to me and says it's really nice, but um, would you mind like why don't you just put in like a cheerful one just to like change the the mood a bit and um i talk about how i'm not going to do that that like melancholy is our specialism and this is like five star misery this is how it's done this is our thing um five star misery is that's that's wonderful that's such a good that's a good description of uh of what you're in for it's not four star no there's going to be mint on a pillow it's the full yeah the full thing turn down service everything Um, one of the things that's, that's great about the folk tradition is, is covers, and I know that you work mm-hmm. in a lot of covers. Um, given your kind of diverse backgrounds and record collections, how do you go about picking which covers go into the sets? Um, I think it really depends on, um, for me personally, choosing things. It's the um, lyric content that resonates with me. So on the album, we have a cover of Gillian Marsh as um, Dark Turn of Mind. And I'm kind of like annoyed that I didn't write that song myself. I feel like it's about me, and I feel like I would have written it if she hadn't got there first. Um, so that's like a that's like an obvious one. But I would imagine like Ben's criteria would be different. I mean, it's it has to be something we can both like and agree to. I mean, there's no point sort of turning up and saying, "Okay, so we're going to do ACDC, ACDC, or something <laughs> too like cheerful." That. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah, what does it, do you have, does it have to rate high on the five star misery? Uh, oh yeah, to, to it has there? to be it has to be sad. There's like we don't even have to talk about that though. Like that's not no one's brought a happy song to no. the table, have they? No. no, no. I mean it's 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 the sort of thing that we start. We used to do um, a straight, I say straight, sort of a uh, a version of Jackson C. Frank's Milk and Honey, um, and then we ended up um, Josie sort of was saying, oh, we can. Listen. I was listening to. Um, the saxophonist Dan Getz uh, CD mm-hmm. CD's quite a lot and on one of the albums there's um, Tis Autumn mm-hmm. and I kind of realised that um, I don't know how I realised it like I couldn't tell you like in musical theory how it works but I kind of heard like melody crossover between them and I said to Ben like how do you think about like mixing these two together this jazz standard Tis Autumn it's like narratively appropriate mm-hmm. Milk and Honey Jackson C. Frank and he kind of looked at it like cordially and he was like yeah we can we can do this and so it happened kind of just uh, quite organically like I had the idea one day and then we kind of m- made it happen and are there any covers that you've tried that have just not worked, no matter how much you loved it or wanted to try to get it into the uh, we, set? There's, a, there's a, a very rare instance. We did a, an ABBA tribute night. Oh, that totally as worked. ABBA, as, as ABBA playing, playing in the background. background. Yeah, that Perfectly t- timed. Well done. <laughs> that well totally done. worked, but um, it's just, it was just a bit, um, it was a bit too happy. I mean, the song itself is not happy, but it's so musically happy, it makes everyone happy, and we were like, whoa, yeah. we can't do this. I mean, this it, it, was, it was done as a joke rather than anything yeah. else. Like no toe tapping at the show. <laughs> it was a gift for a friend. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it was um, knowing me, knowing you. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, can we hear another song? Sure. What's the name um, of this one? It's definitely not Abba. Um, <laughs> it's called The Light of His Lamp.
So your new record, which came out on Friday, Overnight, is your first U.S. release. Um, the last record you did was self-produced, self-recorded, mm-hmm. self-promoted, self-everything. Um, how has the difference with being on Rough Trade kind of influenced the process of making the most recent record versus the, the last one, which was all just the two of you? Um, I guess the, the biggest thing is the things it made possible so um the last album that we had done nothing can bring back the hour we had done entirely in ben's dining room because he records um and we recorded a small chamber orchestra from that dining room one person at a time and then he had kind of layered them all up and worked it all out he'd done very clever things with microphone placement um so as soon as as soon as we had the opportunity to, to sort of go and spend a week in a residential studio with enough space to do it all in one go. Yeah, so we had like a percussionist and a pianist and a double bass player and um, we could all be effectively in the same room playing a song and that's a very different type of record to one that's been where everybody's played separately. Did it allow for more improvisation? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's something, again, like I said, that we've we've wanted to work on we specifically chose um, a jazz pianist um, Kit Downs because he won't play <laughs> what's written on a piece of paper he, he like you can give him a, a rough guide but he's gonna he's gonna do his own thing and um, that kind of forced us to be um, less like control freaky with the whole thing was it I mean you talked about being kind of more in the flow before like is that something you were open to was it there a little bit of like a resistance or I mean it, it, it was something that we had consciously decided to do but obviously um, we were kind of being challenged because over the years doing records ourselves we'd become 
very used to controlling absolutely everything. Um, and I think it was a really good process for us to go through to not be able to control every element of it. But it, it had its... Um, it was uncomfortable at points. Yeah, it I mean, challenged it, 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 was this, it was a sort of thing where, for all the previous records, we sort of put together demos and put in fake strings and all that kind of thing, and literally we knew what the final record was going to sound like or an approximation of when we started actually bringing in other people to play. Um, so the schools were written out and all that kind of thing. Uh, so going to a studio and just saying, well, here's the general idea, let's jam around this and then let's bring this, sort of bring it together, uh, was really liberating. Yeah, so we would play the songs three or four times and then choose a take. And that's, I mean, the last album took us months and months and months yeah. and we got it all done in seven days and that felt amazing. <laughs> Uh, and so now that it's the two of you on the road, how are you reinterpreting kind of your songs from the studio version to the, the live version? Um, I mean, they started off largely as just for one voice and guitar, and then we kind of had ideas about what could go on top of that. So I guess it's just taking all of that off again. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, there's, there's bits that... Because, I mean, it's, it's things like... I'll have, idea, or I'll have done something for the strings as an example... Um, where we can't do that that would then get played in the studio but then of course you can't always have string players with you on stage or anything like that or piano and kind of thing so you start bringing those elements trying to bring them back to what the guitar was doing in the first place so you sort of reinvent so there are, there are points where um, I noticed that uh, a motif that the pianist has played now ends up in Ben's guitar part which is kind of nice because we've like gained something from that it's given us little ideas and stuff and as far as like the themes and kind of evolution from this record, I mean, if you had months and months in the last one, obviously the lyrics can kind of adapt and change seven days or seven days. Do you feel that the uh, ideas had, you know, we'll still be able to explore or new themes or, you know, what are, what are in these songs that is different than the last record? Um, I think for this album, like I, I had a lot of the songs beforehand, but this, this album has um, a much stronger um, holistic kind of concept um, than I've ever had before. Like, I've always liked to have a general sense of how the songs tie together, that they have certain themes, and I choose them on that basis. Um, but this one was really, like, a bit more specific, and it kind of made specifications for where things could go as well, because it's um, from, like, afternoon all the way into, like, night and then back out into the morning again. So it kind of really defined, like, which songs could go where, which was challenging in one way, but also kind of uh, liberating in others. Um, well, I want to make sure we have time for one more song. Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming and, and seeing me. The record is out. It's on Rough Trade. Um, any plans for the fall or early, I guess, early 2017? I guess we can start talking about that. Um, early 2017, definitely. Yeah, I think um, we're going to be back uh, in Oh, amazing. What city, do you know what cities you're hitting? Um, <laughs> at this point, no. <laughs> Head shake from the manager out there as well, no. <laughs> I could see him, like, moving about, but yeah. I didn't know what he yeah. was trying to tell like, me. No, too much detail. No. Um, okay, well, where can people, um, if they want to get in contact here, get the record, et cetera, where can they find you, Instagram, social media, et cetera? Um, we're on all of them, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, we have a website. We've now got Spotify profiles if you want to hear playlists for what we're listening to. Uh, obviously, there's the Rough Trade website. You can definitely get the album from there. So. 
Okay. Well, um, thanks for tuning into this episode. Uh, we're going to hear one more song, and we will be back next week uh, with a whole new show. What are you going to play for us? Um, we're going to play the title track. Okay. Overnight. Thanks for coming. Thank you. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.